Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. Thank you for joining me. I am so glad that you are listening in today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. And speaking of next podcast, before we get started in today's message, I just want to add a note as to why there was no podcast last week. Last week, and it was Mother's Day last Sunday, but last week was also our denomination's annual pastor's conference, and the whole Walker family enjoyed a little vacation. We were able to add a few days to the beginning of the conference, and we were able to go to Asheville, North Carolina. Betsy has always wanted to see the Biltmore House there, if you can call it a house, the giant estate, and this made for a wonderful Mother's Day gift for her. The conference itself was down in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, just about an hour and a half away from Asheville. And uh, boy, the mountains were beautiful. It was wonderful to reconnect with other evangelical friends, pastors from all across our denomination. And the conference speaker, James Bryant Smith, was really a delight. Uh, The conference was refreshing. It was energizing and inspiring. And the speaker taught about spiritual formation and the self-care that pastors need to lead their congregations well. And it was a conference that I really needed and really the whole Walker family needed. And so I just wanted to give a thank you to the congregation at Valley View for blessing us in going and letting us go to this conference. Now, for this week's message. For the next three weeks, we're going to talk about kindness. Christians are called to be a people of kindness. This week, we will look at what biblical kindness is like, what it really is. Next week, we will look at what it means to be clothed in kindness, and we'll finish up with God's command in Micah 6.8 to live with kindness when God tells us to act act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. Biblical kindness is much needed in our world today. Last week, as Betsy and I drove down to North Carolina, our route on the freeway took us along the border between Kentucky and West Virginia, and it was not long before we noticed more than a few businesses had names that caught our attention. They were very specific names. There was Hatfield and McCoy Auto Repair, Hatfield and McCoy Pawn Shop, Hatfield and McCoy Barbecue. We soon realized we were driving along the river that marked the border between the famous feuding families, the Hatfields and the McCoys. It was a feud so fierce that the Hatfields and McCoys McCoys became a description of any big feud. It's a a synonym, or actually it's called a metonym, for any sort of feud going on between families. I looked a little bit up on the internet about this famous feud and learned a little bit. It ran for 30 years, from the time of the Civil War up until the 1890s, and no one knows how it really started, but there are many and multiple stories of how the feud began. Some say it began when one family member wanted revenge on the other family for killing one of their own in the Civil War. Others say it was started over 
uh, who owned, uh, there was apparently uh, a Razorback hog or two Razorback hogs, pigs, basically. And uh, there's a dispute over whether it was the McCoys or the Hatfields that owned them. And there's some fighting that broke out over that. Others say the feud was flamed when a McCoy fell in love with a Hatfield and there was a pregnancy, but no marriage. And one dropped the other and it was just a bad situation. All kinds of stories of how it began, but no one remembers. But the Hatfield and McCoys, that feud, has actually been called the Hatfield and McCoy War. The anger, the killing, and fighting between the families became so fierce that Kentucky and West Virginia had to send in their state militias to get involved. The Supreme Court of the United States even had to weigh in on legal aspects of the feud to help settle things. Can you imagine families hating each other enough to fight and kill each other for over 30 years? That level of bitterness, grudge, uh, of holding uh, and, and holding anger, it's just a weight that can crush souls. But perhaps we're not in so different of times. Disagreement, anger, and bitterness seems to bubble over in our culture today. The U.S. Supreme Court is even now in the heart of a fierce feud. And the news is telling us about who to be mad at and who to blame, whatever side you're on. But you might not need to look to the nation or our culture to see cruelty and bitterness ruling your day and your life. If you're listening today and you're under the weight of anger and bitterness or a strained relationship and you're unsure what to do, then this message and the next few messages are for you. Kindness is evaporating out of our culture. We're more divided than ever. We're more stressed than ever. And you and I, we need peace. We need safety. We need flourishing life. We need beauty. Beauty that can only come from the restorative power of Christ. And we need that beauty instead of ugly bitterness. Biblical kindness is the doorway out of the distrust and the division and the cruelty of our times. What do I mean by biblical kindness? Is this different than just plain kindness? Like so many ethics and virtues, kindness has been watered down. Most of the time when a person says, be kind, they really mean be nice or be polite. And you and I can do a lot of damage by trying to just be nice or just be polite. Being nice usually means not making waves, not causing a stir, smiling and not speaking up when something needs to be said. There have been many lies of silence in the name of politeness. Now, there may actually be a place to keep quiet instead of unleashing the angry thoughts in your mind, but that is not the same as biblical kindness. So please, if you are going to be a vessel of biblical kindness, put away words like nice and polite. Kindness. Biblical kindness is nothing less than the redemptive, restorative power of God. That God cares about you so much that he sent Jesus to redeem you is kindness. In our Monday night small group here at Valley View, we've been going through Louis Giglio's study, Goliath Must Fall. 
And at one point in the video series, Giglio speaks to how we know that we are important to God. And he says to the effect, a cross stands in your life. And because a cross stands in your life, you know you can have victory. You know that you are valuable. You know that you are precious. Because there's a cross in your life where Jesus has purchased your redemption. I love that phrase, a cross stands in your life. And I say this, I say this because to each Christian, the cross of Christ does stand in your life. And to each Christian, because of that cross, you are called to be a person of kindness. Big, restorative, biblical Kindness, that is what we are to live out. And so we have to ask the question, how are we going to live with biblical kindness? The kind of kindness that can release us from the weights of this world, from the relationships that are just grinding into our hearts and just hurting us and and all the pain we feel. How do we enter into that biblical kindness? What does it look like? And there's only one way we can live with biblical kindness, and that is by imitating the kindness of God. Our main text today, the one I want us to start with, is truly a short one, but it's by no means simple. It comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Just one verse, although we're going to look at some verses around it, and we're going to talk about some other places in Scripture. But Ephesians 4, 32 says simply this, and I think it's important for us if we want to begin to live with biblical kindness, because it shows us the shape of biblical kindness. It's Ephesians 4, verse 32, and it says, Be kind. And compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's it. There's word. There's the word kind. In fact, it's the command, be kind. And then there's some other words that describe it. There's compassionate to one another. There's forgiving each other. But then we're told of the true shape of biblical kindness, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So, our kindness must mirror God's forgiveness to us. God's forgiveness is kindness to us. Paul is writing to the Ephesian Christians. I think we need to remember that. He's um, writing to a specific group of Christians. He's drawing them out of their old way of life, a Gentile way of life and thinking, and calling them to live a life that is Jesus-shaped. Now, I dropped us right into Ephesians 4.32, but this whole section is full of instructions of what to do and not to do. You know, if we were to back up just a little bit, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 20 through to 22 through 24, they tell us that we're called to live a new life, uh, a new kind of life in Jesus. And that's what I'm talking about with Paul writing to these Ephesian Christians, telling them, exit their old way and enter the new way. And Ephesians 4.22 begins like this, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The Christian is to live differently. Make no mistake, good behavior does not make us good and earn our way into heaven. Jesus is our righteousness. He is our goodness. 
But the Christian is to live differently. Now, as a result of salvation, we are to be something new. Christ, we are made new in Christ, but now we are to live in a new way because of Christ. I, I like how Eugene Peterson describes the Christian life. He says this, um, that the Christian life, the meaning our ethics and our behaviors are both relational and reflective. That is to say, God establishes a relationship with us in Jesus Christ. So there's the relational part of the Christian life. And then once we have let Jesus rule over us as Lord, our lives should reflect God and his goodness. So there's relationship and then there's reflection. And so we are being called to reflect God's kindness. Now, verse 32, which we've already read with its command to be kind, is the culmination of this reflecting of God's goodness. So if you want to unleash biblical kindness into your life and into the lives of those around you, you must live with Christ-like kindness. And that's what I want to talk about, is what does Christ-like kindness look like? That's an important question. We need to think about that. And so I have for you a few different steps, a few different angles, a few different aspects of Christ-like kindness. There's four of them for you to consider today. And the first of those uh, aspects of Christ-like kindness is this, and we'll call it biblical kindness because uh, Christ-like kindness, if I say that a bunch of times, I'm going to get my tongue tied up. I'll say this. First, biblical kindness treats people with real value. Biblical kindness treats people with real value. I asked my wife what she thought the opposite of kindness was, and she gave me three words, cruelty, bitterness, and apathy. Apathy, what a great word when you're thinking about kindness, to think about the opposite of kindness. If you're apathetic, you cannot live with biblical kindness because apathy is not caring. It's disengagement. Apathy feels nothing and does nothing. It doesn't care. Apathy disregards the value of a person. It is a shame when someone or something's value is disregarded. There's a story about not understanding the value of something. I think we can maybe start to see when something isn't valued, what a tragedy it is. In April of 1667, the English poet John Milton signed an agreement with Samuel Simmons, a London publisher, by which he sold the copyright of Paradise Lost for five pounds, plus five pounds for the sale of each of three subsequent editions an edition comprising of 1,500 copies. Milton received a second five pounds in April of 1669, making a grand total of a 10-pound profit to the author of the England's greatest epic. After his death, Milton's widow, Elizabeth, sold all the remaining rights for eight pounds to Simmons, who became the perpetual copyright owner. It's hard to imagine someone selling something of such great value for so little. What a shame when someone doesn't realize the value of what they have, and so often we do not see the value of other people. Too often we see problems instead of people. 
We are more concerned about a person's bad decision than we are the person themselves. Too often we value people for what they can do for us rather than that they are children of God. Do not value a person for how they can help you at work or help you at school or how they can make you feel better or make you more popular. Value a person because they are made by God. And too often we see a person's opinion more than the image of God in them. Sometime in the last five to seven years, people have boiled down into lists of politics and issues. And they'll say, you know what? I believe A, B, C, and D. And if you don't agree, then you are my enemy. Value a person not because of what they believe, but because God loves them. God loves each one of us dearly. He values each one of us, not because of what we can do or what we think, but because we are each of us made in his image and precious to God. Henry Nouwen writes this in his book, The Wounded Healer. He says, Compassion is born when we discover in the center of our own existence, not only that God is God and man is man, but, but also that our neighbor is really our fellow man. When you read about Jesus in the Gospels, he values every person he interacts with. Even the most stubborn and corrupt people are valuable to him. And when I mean stubborn and corrupt people, usually it's uh, the priests and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the people who should have known better, and they're angry with Jesus. He values them. He may call them out, but he values them. He takes every one of them seriously. Biblical kindness begins when you decide to see a person's value first and foremost above all else. Secondly, biblical kindness is personal and present. Daniel Goleman says this, compassion begins with attention. There's a little story about a lady who needed personal touch in her life, a connection with people. It goes like this. Mammy Adams always went to the branch post office in her town because the postal employees were there were friendly. She went there to buy stamps just before Christmas one year, and the lines were particularly long. Someone pointed out that there was no need to wait in line because there was a stamp machine in the lobby. I know, said Mammy, but the machine won't ask me about my arthritis. She valued the personal connection. Last week at our denomination's pastor's conference, which I already have mentioned, the keynote speaker reminded us over and over again how personal Jesus was with everyone he ministered to. Over and over, Jesus looks people in the eye in the Gospels. Over and over, he asks about their struggles. Over and over, Jesus gets at their level. And there's a particular story in the Gospels that I'm thinking of. About a woman, a woman who wanted or was content to remain unknown, but she also wanted healing, the healing power of Jesus in her life. So let me read it to you. It's in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verses 42 through 48. I'm going to start about halfway through verse 42. It says, as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So I need you to picture this crowd where it's so close and so strong and so big, you can't tell anybody apart. So that's the picture. The crowd almost crushed him. And then verse 43 says, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. 
When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. In essence, Peter's saying, whoever's going to know who touched you? Everybody's touching you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, and I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed. That is such an important phrase there. Seeing that she could not go unnoticed. She came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Matthew chapter 9 tells us that this woman was only hoping to touch Jesus' cloak. She was willing to remain anonymous and nameless. But the kindness of Christ would not allow that to happen. Who touched me? Jesus wasn't mad. He wasn't trying to embarrass this woman. The kindness of Jesus moved this woman from anonymous to daughter. Do you see how he became intensely personal in the story? If you want to unleash the transformative power of biblical kindness, be present with people. Get to know them. Listen to them. Make sure they know that you see them. Our world is busy. People are rushing too much and are rarely present in the moment. Our world is convenient. We often don't like the effort it takes to see and to know people. Our world is shallow. It is easier to be nice than to dig into a person's life and to get to know them. But biblical kindness says we must see the face of our neighbors and really find out how they're doing. Third, aspect of biblical kindness is that it is biblical kindness is sacrificial. Real kindness is not about yourself, but it's about blessing others. And if you want to bless others, if you're going to bless others, if you're going to actually do the work of blessing others, it's going to cost you. It will cost you time. It will cost you energy. It will cost you reputation. It will cost you resources. I cannot think of a single time in the Gospels where Jesus healed or helped a person that did not result in a cost to himself. And ultimately, we know that in Jesus' kindness, the cost was the cross. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 say this, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. Biblical kindness is expensive. Kindness, it goes beyond duty. It means doing something you don't have to do. And kindness of this sort usually costs something, and it doesn't expect any reward. Gail Summers says this, All the cards in the deck of Revelation about God's mercy and kindness are stacked in favor of the unthinkable. Meaning, it's not deserved, and it has a cost. Biblical kindness has a cost. And if you're going to unleash biblical kindness into the world, it will cost you but its benefits are far greater than the cost. Fourthly, about biblical kindness is biblical kindness is restorative and redemptive. With all this talk about kindness and thinking of others and caring for others and knowing others, you might be listening thinking of a person who's hurt you deeply, and you might not use the word 
kind to describe them. In fact, you might be thinking they're more likely waiting for the next moment when they can lash out at you rather than show you kindness. So what do we do then? What do we do when the people that we love and care about or the people that are in our lives that we're concerned about are not kind to us? Now, (laughs) I got a quote from Mark Twain here. It says, kindness is a language that deaf people can hear and that blind people can see. And that's true. But I would add to that, that the enraged, the angry, and those who are bitter are touched by biblical kindness, and they are made better for it. They may be blinded by their anger and their bitterness, but they'll see kindness. They may not know what to do with it, but they'll see it. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe says this, Treat a man as he appears to be, and you make him worse. But treat a man as if he were what he potentially could be, and you make him what he should be. Let me read that again, because I think it's such a good uh, quote for us to dwell on. Treat a man as he appears to be, and you make him worse. But treat a man as if he were what he potentially could be, and you make him what he should be. Jesus' kindness is always aimed at what each of us could be when we're restored to God. He's never content to be nice to us in our sin and leave us there. Jesus, whenever he speaks to a person in the Gospels, speaks to the people in their potential for beauty, potential for being restored to God, potential for being a part of the kingdom. Every action that Jesus takes towards a person in the Gospels is restorative. And ultimately, we know it's redemptive because he goes to the cross for every single person in history. And so when we want to live with biblical kindness, we should seek to restore others as well. Biblical kindness is an antidote for apathy and division and cruelty in our world because it is restorative. So, seek to live out Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Do not just resolve to be nice or polite, but live with God-shaped, Christ-shaped, biblical kindness. This type of kindness will change your world, your relationships, and your home. Biblical kindness, it's the calling of every Christian. Each one of us should resolve that each person we meet would encounter the kindness of Christ in us. Let us pray, and I want to pray a prayer uh, that was written by William Temple, and it goes like this. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill, of our, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people. Through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go with Jesus.